0: in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, witnessed the lame man being healed at the pool of Bethesda, and most recently been one of those actually distributing the bread to the multitude, watching with his very own eyes as those loaves reproduced miraculously, even as the people were taking it out of the basket. Sure, some of the things that Jesus had been saying Along the way, were off-putting at times, but he just couldn't deny the miracles. Eventually, Jesus' wisdom, charisma, and, and leadership qualities would catch up to his power. And until then, Avi'd simply overlook Jesus' verbal slips and faux pas. But then, but then, Jesus went off the rails. The things he'd said while teaching in the synagogue that day in Capernaum were nothing short of offensive. It seemed like Jesus was trying to deter people rather than attract them. Each new thing Jesus said was increasingly unpleasant and intolerable. Avi and several of the other disciples said to one another, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? But instead of apologizing, Jesus just added more fuel to the fire, things that were more intolerable, more unacceptable. And so, Avi had reached the end of his rope. He and many of his friends headed for home, resolved to follow Jesus no longer because they just couldn't stomach his teachings anymore. Have you ever struggled with some of the things that Jesus said or that you've read in the Bible? Things that offended your sense of propriety or dignity, justice or morality, What do you do when God's words seem to run counter to your values, your feelings, your beliefs? How do you respond in those kinds of situations? What was it that Jesus said that day that was so objectionable, that was so hard to accept? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. He he said this even though everybody knew that Jesus had been born in Bethlehem to Joseph and Mary. Well, Jesus also said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him and Jesus said more all that the fathers all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. This is the will of the Father who sent me that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. Hmm. It was these words that many of the disciples responded with, "This, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? They're hard indeed. And not just for the people of Jesus' day or throughout the succeeding generations, but for us today as well. And those are just the tip of the iceberg, folks. They really are. There are lots of difficult teachings in God's Word. Teachings that are hard to understand and even harder to accept. Doctrines that are hard to stomach because they run so contrary to our natural sensibilities, feelings, and preferences. Teachings like the sovereign, omnipotent, all good God allowing and ordaining that evil and suffering abound in this world. Teachings like God sacrificing his own innocent son to uphold his own justice and appease his own wrath. Things like people being born sinful and that they cannot ever attain righteousness through their own efforts. That unsaved people will suffer eternal conscious torment under God's wrath and hell. That only those who come to Jesus can be saved from this wrath. That only people who are drawn by God are able to come. And that God doing all of these things are ultimately for His own glory. Any of those strike a nerve? Or any of those truths disturbing to you? These are indeed difficult teachings, many of which are at the core of the Christian faith. When we're faced with such challenging concepts that are difficult to accept, the question for us is the same as it was for the followers of Jesus back then. How will you respond to them? Near the end of the passage, we read of the two responses to Jesus' teachings. Verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the (laughs) twelve, there's twelve left. There are a lot more than twelve. He said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? But Sidon and Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So one group responded to Jesus' words with unbelief. They couldn't accept his teachings, and so they walked with him no more. The other group responded with those words. You have the words of eternal life, Lord. How do you respond to the difficult doctrines of the Bible? Do you, will you respond with belief or unbelief? Accept them or reject them? Believe that Jesus and the Bible... Have the words of life, or will you turn away from his word and seek your own standard of truth and life? I ask these questions knowing that none of us believes Jesus' teachings perfectly. So we we all need to make efforts toward believing all that Jesus in the Bible says, even the hard stuff. Yeah, even the hard stuff. That's the purpose of this message that we'll work toward believing all of Jesus' teachings because even when they're hard, they're still true and life-giving. Say that again. We need to work toward believing all Jesus' teachings because even when they're hard, they're still true and life-giving. The hard ones are life-giving as well. I hope we'll realize that even though they're sometimes difficult to accept, they're still the words of life. That the words that Jesus has spoken, indeed all that God has spoken through the Bible, are spirit and life. Therefore, they are a balm to our weary souls. They bring hope and assurance, peace and joy. Now in the end, this is a question of authority. Who or what is your authority and will be your authority. Is it God's word, or your current feelings or preferences? Will you believe that Jesus' words, that God's word is authoritative no matter how difficult? Or will you reject his word and authority and establish your own when it comes to certain beliefs? It's the age-old question that first occurred in the Garden of Eden when Satan tempted Eve to question the authority of God's word. Has God really said? Surely you will not die. Eve chose to follow what she and her heart and mind and feelings perceived to be best. Instead of trusting God's word and what he declared to be best. And that's the question, the dilemma that faced the disciples here in John 6. This morning we're going to focus in on the controversial teachings that we saw that Jesus said here in the text. I see three steps in responding to these teachings, which will also help us when responding to the many other difficult biblical doctrines when we encounter them. The points are derived from the disciples' response to what Jesus said. This is a hard teaching or saying, who can accept it? or listen to it, or understand it, depending on which version you're looking at. It's the word to hear in Greek, and it carries a depth of meaning well beyond the physiological act of audibly receiving sound waves. It suggests effectual action, a response of the mind and heart in understanding, accepting, and following the message that one audibly hears or reads. This definition is helpful in revealing the three steps of dealing with hard sayings. So the first point is this. The teachings of Jesus need to be understood. This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? New King James Version. The first step in dealing with Jesus' words here is to make sure that we understand what he is saying. The late Dr. Reinhold Niebuhr, once decided that he write out his theological position, his credo. Upon completion of this lengthy masterwork from this brilliant man, he realized that it was in need of being read and evaluated by a mind that was much more practical than his own. So he bundled up the material and sent it to a minister whom he knew, who had a very practical mind and and a pastoral heart. So... The man read it, and with great pains he worked through this lengthy paper. When he finally finished, he wrote this candid note in reply My dear Dr. Niebuhr, I understood every word you have written, but I do not understand a single sentence. What did Jesus mean by what he said? This, of course, is the goal of all forms of communication, to be correctly understood by those you are intending to communicate with. Understanding must always be the first step in the process, because if we are misunderstanding what was said, then we're making our choices based upon false or incorrect information. If someone is believing something Jesus or the Bible wasn't meaning, then they're accepting a wrong teaching, a falsehood like Mormons who believe in a different, entirely other person named Jesus who cannot save them, or people in this passage who believed in Jesus as their political and national Messiah. Both beliefs are false beliefs based on misunderstanding. Similarly, if someone's rejecting God's word based on a false conception of what it does teach, then it's just as bad. For instance, people claim to reject the Bible because they think it endorses slavery, advocates misogyny, or portrays that the earth is flat, all of which are patently false claims. Just because somebody alleges that the Bible teaches something doesn't mean that the Bible actually teaches it. And so, people are rejecting God's Word based on a misunderstanding of what it says. So this is why we must first seek to understand what it's communicating. Or in this instance, what Jesus is intending for those who are listening to him to understand through his words. Now here's the problem. It doesn't mean that the things that are said are always easy to understand. And again, get an amen to that one? There are a number of sayings and passages in the Bible that are difficult to understand. Case in point, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood. What? I recognize every word. It's just hard to understand. On the face of it, Jesus' words sound like He's telling His listeners to eat Him cannibalize him hey lunch (laughs) but it's clear that this isn't the meaning Jesus is using a metaphor he's not intending to communicate that he's literally bread nor is he telling people to cannibalize him by literally eating his flesh and drinking his blood that had to be an appalling thought an appalling concept to them And yet Jesus knew this. He completely understood that it was appalling to them. And so he utilized those feelings of that concept in order to communicate an equally appalling spiritual truth. Uniting with him through his bodily death and washing their souls in his blood. In other words, Jesus intended to evoke the very reaction that he got from his listeners. He didn't say anything offensive, and yet he knew that they would be offended. Hmm. Why? (laughs) Why would he do this? Why is he saying things that would ward off people rather than attract them? It's a good question. John gives us a parenthetical statement here. It says, Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe. So it appears that Jesus is attempting to separate the wheat from the chaff, to filter out the nominal followers who are not there because they believe in him for who he is. And so he uses this language because he knows that by it they will be offended and stop fake following him. We've heard of fake news, there's fake following too. Fake belief, yes. He didn't want them to fake follow him. But Jesus is still communicating true and vital concepts through these graphic metaphors to everybody for their understanding. True and vital concepts about what it means that he is the bread of life and how people are to get eternal life. Is that important? That's like as important as it gets, folks. Look at, look at the, you, the language he uses. He says, unless you do this thing, you have no life. Whoever does this thing has eternal life. They will live because of me. They will live forever. That's important stuff. What Jesus is doing here is repeating previous concepts. That he's already talked about in this discourse. And he's now utilizing even more vivid and dramatic language. Earlier in the dialogue, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And again, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And again, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And again, whoever believes in me has eternal life. So Jesus has already made absolutely clear to everyone listening the conditions for eternal spiritual life, which is what? Believe in Him. Come to Him. That's it. Hence the breadmore metaphor, He is our provision for eternal life. But many in the crowd are like, nah, nah. They continue to not believe. And many of the disciples continued to not believe that he was the bread of life. And so he took the metaphor a step further. He said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Notice that the results are the same eternal life, living forever. He has simply made the condition of coming to Him, believing in Him more vivid by replacing those terms with the metaphor eating His flesh and drinking His blood. Eating His flesh and drinking His blood are metaphors for coming and believing in Him. Oh, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The taking of refuge is tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise him with joyful lips. It's just that these metaphors enhance the understanding of his listeners, of our understanding, of what coming to Jesus and believing in him means. Jesus tells us the bread is his flesh that he will give for the life of the world. What's he talking about? He's talking about his death on the cross. That he will die so that those throughout the earth who believe in him may live. Colossians 1, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He incorporated this imagery at the Last Supper when he broke the bread and he said, this is my body which is given for you. He said this because we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So, eating his flesh is a metaphor for believing in Jesus' bodily death on the cross to reconcile us to God. So when Jesus says we must eat his flesh, he is saying that we must find the soul nourishment for our souls in his death. And it's similar meaning with drinking his blood. At the Last Supper, when Jesus poured out the wine, he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's with the pouring out of blood, which again signified his death, that Jesus purchased our redemption. God put Jesus Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood. Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that from a, of a lamb without blemish or spots. So, drinking his blood is a metaphor for believing in Jesus' death on the cross as a ransom to pay the penalty for our sin and satisfy the wrath of God. A quick aside here. Jesus is not Jesus is not referring to the taking of communion here. I was going to say Eucharist because I knew Bill would love that, but not so much, huh? <laughs> he is not saying that someone must take communion in order to receive eternal life. Rather, communion as Josh said is a reminder of the truths that Jesus is teaching here. The Lord's Supper is a sign that commemorates, recognizes, reminds us of Jesus' death and our union. Communion, see see the word communion? We come into union with Jesus Christ. It's signifying that. It's reminding us that we have come into union with Jesus Christ through His body and blood. That was the side note. Back. So the metaphors in this passage signify that Jesus will give his body and his blood. He will die a gruesome death on the cross as a sacrifice to pay the sentence for sin, to placate the wrath of God and purchase eternal life for those who come to him and believe in him and his death on the cross. To eat His flesh and to drink His blood is to trust in Him and His work. It's to rejoice in the slaughter of the Son of God. Yeah, you heard that right. It's to rejoice in the slaughter of the Son of God on a cross. It's to treasure the tearing of His flesh and the pouring out of His blood on our behalf. It's to boast only in the cross of Jesus Christ by which we are united to him and his death. That's what he's saying to the crowd and to his disciples through these graphic terms. And it's this very thing that they cannot bear. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Hmm. And it's also what he's saying to us here this morning. Everyone who reads this word, will you believe in, will you partake of the spiritual food of the slaughter of the Son of God? Belief. Now we need to also understand The other main point of Jesus in this dialogue, and it's Jesus' answer to the question, who can accept it? In addressing their grumbling and unbelief, Jesus shockingly says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And again, no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. So there's a couple key words here. The first is can, and the other is draws. Can is a statement of ability, not of permission. Permission is may, ability is can. Jesus is not saying that the Father will not permit anyone to come to Him, but they simply are not able to come to Him not able to believe in him unless his Father in heaven does some kind of work. This is a statement of the total inability of humanity. We are by our very nature sinners, haters of God. There is nothing within our natural abilities that can come to Christ. As Paul says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We are spiritually impotent by nature, unable and unwilling to trust God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Remember that one? What can a spiritually dead person do to give themselves life? Anybody? Yeah, nothing, nada, zero, zip, zilch. And Jesus says here, it's the Spirit who gives life, the flesh. The flesh is so helpful. The flesh is of no help at all, which means something must happen. And unless it happens, we will not come to Jesus. And what is that thing? Unless the Father draws him. So what does Jesus mean by draw? This term was commonly used in classical Greek for drawing water from a well or to pull or haul in the nets when they were fishing. It's also used, interestingly, in the book of Acts when Paul was seized and dragged out of the temple at Jerusalem. Huh. So the drawing is an act done by another in which the thing being drawn has no say. Which makes sense of the way that Jesus rephrases it in verse 65, unless it is granted by the Father. Granted means given. The Father is the one acting, drawing us out of the pit of sin and death, giving us, granting us belief, and giving us to His Son, Jesus Christ. Woohoo! For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing. It is the gift, the grant of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So Jesus' answer to the question, who can accept it, is only those that the Father draws. So so let me get this straight. The, The reason they're not trusting in Him as the bread of life is because the Father has not drawn them. Yes. The unbeliever remains in his unbelief because he loves his unbelief and hates God. And the only way for him to come out of his unbelief is if the Father grants him belief. This is a hard saying. It is. It's not all that Jesus says here, by the way. Jesus also says, all that the Father gives me, grants me, gives me, draws, will come to me. In other words, the Father's giving is effectual. Everyone who the Father draws, everyone he grants faith to, will irresistibly come to Jesus. They will believe in Jesus. And then, he's still not done. He says that everyone who has been given to him by the Father will be raised. Period. Full stop, will be raised. No exceptions. The one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. So not only is the Father's calling effectual, but so is Jesus saving. Those who are given by the Father to Jesus are equally unable to fully and finally walk away from him he will preserve them in their belief and will raise them at the last day these are these these are hard sayings folks it's after jesus said these words these words here no one can come to me unless the father grants it that the disciples so we're out no more we're done Now that was an extremely long first point. <laughs> I promise the second and third are going to be shorter. Point number 2. The teachings of Jesus need to be accepted. This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And I V. As difficult as it might be, we need to accept that what Jesus says is true. Because as he says, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. His words, no matter how difficult they are to swallow at times, are still spirit and life. They give life, they impart life. As Peter says in response to Jesus' question, Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now I want to reiterate here, that this is hard these are hard sayings there are massive implications to these and other biblical teachings and if you don't think they're hard then you really haven't thought about it deeply when someone blithely shrugs their shoulders and says oh that was an easy one to believe simply shows that they haven't taken the time To do the first step, to understand. But once we've acknowledged that these teachings really are hard to stomach, the question is whether we're going to accept them or not. To believe that no matter how difficult they might be, the words of Jesus are still true and are still spirit and life. It's either that or what? Someone else's teachings? Whose words or teachings do we think carry ultimate authority? By what standard will we judge what's true? Who are we going to entrust our life and especially our afterlife to? Whose words or ideas or teachings will we believe are true? Our own? (laughs) When we don't like what someone says, or we're going to judge them according to our moral and ethical feelings, our opinions, our preferences? Do we really think that we have the basis of truth and life within ourselves? Well, if not our opinions, then whose? To whom will you go? To whom will you go? Who is it that you think has the words of eternal life? There's only one, there's only one whose spirit, whose words are spirit and life. Only one who is true and whose words are true, will you accept what he says or not? Now, I know that I set this up as an either-or proposition that we either believe all of them or none of them. And in principle, this is true. But in reality, yeah. As I said at the beginning, the truth is that none of us do this perfectly. Few of us probably even do it well. Several years ago, I attended a conference here in town that R.C. Sproul was speaking at. I remember vividly something he said during one of the Q&A sessions. I don't remember the question, but I remember the answer. This is R.C. Sproul. He's like pretty cool. He was pretty cool. Now he's in heaven, so he's really cool now. He said, the greatest theologian in the world is probably only 80% correct. The greatest theologian in the world is probably only 80% correct. Where, where, Where does that leave me? You? It leaves us not with a checklist, not with a percentage, but with the challenge of continuously bringing our beliefs before the Word of God and examining those beliefs in the light of it. It brings us to a need to understand His Word better and to allowing ourselves to be taught by it, regardless of how difficult some of its truths might be. It leaves us with the enduring question of who we believe our authority is when it comes to encountering biblical truth. Number three. The teachings of Jesus need to be followed. We're 66 again. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. So Jesus said to the 12, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There's a massive difference between acceptance and action between mental assent and persistent trust. Faced with everything that Jesus said, the disciples responded in one of two ways. Some followed Jesus, and others said, I'm not following you anymore. Some not only intellectually believed that what Jesus said was true, but they trusted it and they staked their life on it. They believed, that is, they persistently trusted what Jesus said in such a way that it translated into their lives, into how they walked. The words of Jesus not only formed and fashioned what they thought, but how they acted. I think the key to this is in Peter's response. Lord, you have the words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. They believed these words were spirit and life. They believed that he was the Messiah. It began there. And so they ate the flesh and drank the blood of Jesus by persistently trusting that he is the Holy One of God. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh and since we have a great priest over the house of God let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith how truly wondrous and life-giving are those difficult words do you believe that Jesus is the Christ the messiah Is he the one you are trusting in for eternal life? If so, then you must believe that his words are true and are words of eternal life. Yes, many of them are difficult. But do you trust in Jesus? Do you trust that since he is life, that his words are life-giving? We've seen how this is true concerning Jesus' words of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. I want to take our last few moments together to look at the life-giving beauty of those other difficult words that Jesus spoke. They're hard in one respect, but but life-giving, but life-giving, glorious beautiful. They drip with the dew of life. The first thing that we may see in these words is the amazing, profound grace of God in them. Through these words we see how radically corrupt and truly undeserving of eternal life we are. But God, but God moved upon us anyway. Despite our rebellion and our utter unrighteousness, even though we were dead in trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He brought life where there was no life, hope where there was no hope, and praise the Lord that He didn't leave it up to us. If God had left any part of me coming to Him and believing Him up to me, I would have dug in my heels. I would have fought with all my might to get away from Him. So would have you. But God, but drew us all glory to him who knew what we were like and yet saved us anyway. Who drew us out of the pit of death to life in Christ. This should fill us with humility and thankfulness. This is the glory and the beauty and the life of this truth, of these words. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but I am found. I was blind. Can a blind man make himself see? No. He gave me sight. He gave me life. Amazing grace. The second thing we may see and feel through these words is the utter assurance. Of what Christ has done. For just as I would not have come to him in the first place. So if it were up to my sinful self. I would not stay. Nah. Nah. I just walk away. And yet. Jesus. Preserves us. He will accomplish the Father's will that He lose none of all the Father has given Him. We will be raised on the last day. This is our assurance, church. It has nothing to do with us and our willing and our trying to hold on to salvation. Rather, it has everything to do with whether or not Jesus can do the Father's will. Can you do the Father's will by yourself? No! It's not up to you. It's up to Him. He will do the Father's will. He will accomplish all that God sent Him to do. He will deliver us all. Everyone. Every one of us that the Father has granted to Him. It can't happen for us to lose it. If we were to lose it, then Jesus will have not done the Father's will. And if Jesus doesn't do the Father's will, guess what? None of y'all are saved. But we don't have to worry about that, do we? Because we have a Savior who is perfect and majestic and glorious. This too is the glory and beauty and spirit and life of these words. Another thing that we can see and feel is the hope this brings to our prayers for our loved ones. Do you ever look at someone that you love and realize that if it were up to them, they'd never come to Christ? They're so deeply entangled in this thing or that. They're so far from Christ that you just can't see how they would ever believe in Him. And guess what? right. If it's up to them. But here here's the glory. You're not praying to them. You are not praying to them, are you? Who are you praying to? The one who draws. They cannot come. No one can come to me. But I'm going to pray and pray and say, God, You can do this. You can draw. We're not depending on the spiritually dead to give themselves new life, to resuscitate their lifeless souls. We're praying to a God who is all-powerful, who has life in himself and is the one who draws people out of death and gives them life. Our confidence need not be in the people we are praying for, but only in God. And so pray with confidence to the only one who can make your loved ones alive. Don't despair. It doesn't matter how long they've walked in unbelief. It doesn't matter how long they've walked in unbelief. Because I know a God who draws. I know a God who grants. I know a God who makes alive. It's the Spirit of God who makes alive. And it's the Son alone who can raise them up on the last day. If the worship team would come forward. it's one final point. And it's this. All glory to God. If every part of your and everyone else's salvation is ever and only because of Him, then all glory goes to Him. If He is the one who calls, He is the one who draws, He is the one who saves, He is the one who sustains, and He is the one who raises us, then all of our praise and all of our adoration go to Him and to Him alone. This truth should compel us to worship. These words should compel us to worship, to adore, to praise His name, and to declare, Lord, to whom should we go? Could we go? You have the words of eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, You do have the words of eternal life. And these hard words are also glorious. We praise you for these truths. We praise you that they are life-giving. Jesus, that you are life and your words are spirit and life. Help us to believe where we doubt. Help us to see areas where, where we struggle, struggle with truths that are life to our souls. Do this in us, Spirit of God. In Jesus' name, amen.